You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. And then when I was in eighth grade, right after eighth grade, um, my dad died in this tragic accident. And my older brother blamed me for his death that night. He's like, it's your fault. Your dad's going to die. At the time, I just didn't know how to process that. My guest today is named Tim Davis. He is the author of Tripolar, the story of a bipolar triathlete. Well, hi, my name's Tim D, and I am an alcoholic and an addict. Brett, thanks for having me on your podcast. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you on. Recovery survey, let's talk recovery. Um, first and foremost, people like to hear the stats. So uh, my sobriety date is June 15th, 2007. And I have not had a drink or a drug or anything that affects me from the neck up uh, since June 15, 2007, which was the day after my 33rd birthday. Um, so what it was like and what happened and what it's like today. Well, what it was like is I grew up in a big Catholic family. I was the third oldest of seven. Born in Georgia, but raised in West Virginia. Um, not a lot to do there. And I had an older brother and sister. My sister is the oldest, but my older brother is four years older than me. And he um, got into all kinds of stuff. And me being his next youngest brother, he let me hang around with him and do all the things he did. So, you know, when he was 12 years old, he was taking his first drink and his first drug. And he was letting me go right along with him. So I was eight years old when I was taking my first drink and smoking my first uh, wacky tobacco marijuana. And uh, I didn't know any better. I thought I was just being cool like him and his older friends. Um, but I do know, you know, looking back, I was always an anxious kid, and uh, I sure liked the way that beer and that liquor and that weed made me feel, because it made my anxiety and my insecurities go away, and I felt like everything was going to be okay once, you know, I had that, that sense of ease and comfort that comes with the first drink, as it says in the big book. I very much enjoyed that. I certainly didn't like the taste of some of the things I drank, but I... I always knew I liked the effects, so I pushed on right through the, the nasty taste of some of the things we drank. Because I remember when I was a kid, when we started drinking, our dad's, not my dad, but uh, one of our friend's dads, we used to hang out at his house a lot because he would just let us drink. He didn't care what we did. And uh, he would buy these six packs of Pabst Blue Ribbon for $1.29. And Pabst Blue Ribbon is not very tasty beer, in my opinion. But when you're a kid with no job, $1.29 six pack. Is in your budget. <laughs> so we drank a lot of Pabst Blue Ribbon as a youngster. Um, and going through, um, I guess, late elementary school and just going into middle school, I didn't do it every day. Um, mainly like a few times a month on the weekends, here and there, whenever, basically whenever my older brother let me do it with him. In the middle school, it started becoming more of an every weekend thing, but definitely not on school nights. And then when I was in eighth grade, right after eighth grade, um, my dad died in this tragic accident. He had been drinking a lot that day. And we were at the house and we were kind of playing chase and uh, tickle wars. He was playing chase with me. And, um, you know, I was like, ha ha, you can't catch me. I ran out on the balcony and he chased me out on the balcony. And uh, I ran down to the end of the balcony and back in the other side of the house. And he followed me, but he tripped and didn't make it. And he, he went end over the, the, the safety rail and landed head first in our driveway below the two-story balcony. That was a really crazy night. Um, he ended up being in a coma for nine months, um, but my older brother blamed me for it. And then he died after nine months in a coma. And my older brother blamed me for his death that night. He's like, it's your fault. Your dad's going to die. And uh, at the time, I just didn't know how to process that. 
And my mom has always said, the only therapy that we need is a Catholic priest. And I was a good altar boy, but I wasn't getting the kind of therapy I needed from just saying a few Hail Marys and Our Fathers, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I just kind of stopped believing in God for a long time after that happened, because I just thought at age 13, you know, if there's a God, why would he do this to me and our family, you know? Like, why would he take my father away from me? You know, why would he have my, let my little brother physically abuse me and blame me for my father's death? And I actually believed that for a long time. So I know in, in rehab, because I went to rehab several times because I'm a slow learner. <laughs> in uh, rehab, they always uh, said, you know, can you try and pinpoint that, that the point in your drinking and using career when, when you first thought to, um, you know, drink or use drugs to escape negative or painful feelings. And I can definitely pinpoint it to that event of my father's death and being blamed for it. Um, that's when I certainly sought to drink and use more because I had a lot of grief and trauma that I didn't know how to process. But I knew when I drank and did drugs, you know, mainly smoking weed back then, that it made that pain go away, at least temporarily. Um, going into high school, I thought I was going to be some sort of pro athlete. But uh, I'm five foot eight, and in high school I was like, you know, 120 pounds and uh, not very fast. So, you know, I played basketball, and I was above average, but certainly not good enough to make it to college. I played football because everybody in my family plays football. But of my five brothers, I'm the one who was like the most mediocre at it. All my other brothers really excelled at it, but I just didn't get into it. I think partly because my older brother beat me up so much that I just, you know, didn't like inflicting violence on other people. I mean, although sometimes I'd think about how angry it made me that my little brother abused me, that I'd go out there and hit other guys really hard and pretend they were my little brother, you know, just kind of channel my anger that way. Anyway, so I tried to control my drinking and using by not partying during season when I was in high school because I played a lot of sports in high school. But then come around, you know, late of my junior year and beginning of my senior year when I wasn't getting any scholarship letters and realized I wasn't even going to be able to play college ball. I started drinking and using more during season instead of, you know, you know, only doing the off season. And then that went on into college where I just daily drank and smoked weed and somehow still managed to get good grades. I always did my homework first. I was a good student. After college is when my drinking and drugging really got bad. I met my wife-to-be my freshman year at USC. When it came to apply to colleges, I applied to colleges on the other side of the country to get away from my abusive older brother and just to get a, kind of get a fresh start. So I moved from West Virginia to Los Angeles in 92 to go to University of Southern California. And I met my, my, my wife-to-be there. She lived on the same floor in the same dorm as me freshman year. And we were just friends for a while, but we started dating at the end of the year. And we dated pretty much all through college. We had a couple breakups. Um, I remember, uh, I think it was my senior year, or right after we graduated from college, we moved in together, and she bought me this book called The Addiction Workbook, and I wasn't ready to look at uh, or accept that I was an addict alcoholic. I think I read one or two pages, maybe answered a couple questions, and then, you know, the denial of my disease said, nope, this ain't me, I can quit whenever I want to, and it took a few more years before I actually got myself to my first meeting, as we got married, and then... uh when she got pregnant with our first child, that's when, you know, things started getting serious. And she was worried that I wouldn't be sober enough to take her to the hospital when her water broke. So I agreed to go to a meeting, basically to get her off my back. And I went to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, because at the time, I didn't think I was an alcoholic. But I, I smoked weed every day. It was like my, my panacea, my daily medicine, you know, just it kept me even. 
I was self-medicating with it, you know. So since I didn't think I could quit marijuana, I was like, I got to go to, you know, I have a drug problem. I'll go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. But I walked into my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting with my wife because I was afraid to go by myself because, you know, I didn't want to be like all those losers in there, you know, and I kind of stood in the back of the room. And the person that was leading the meeting was a guy who was in a wheelchair because he tried to commit suicide by jumping off a bridge, but he survived, but he ended up permanently in a wheelchair. And me, knowing nothing about how AA and NA and the 12 steps work, I'm just in there looking for the differences, and I saw a lot of differences and no similarities. And so I, I kind of checked out and didn't really go to meetings for a little while after that, because I'm not like you guys, you know, that, that whole mentality that just prolonged my disease and led me to deeper and darker bottoms before I eventually surrendered and got sober. So my message to anybody who's new in recovery is look for the similarities, not the differences. Don't be a knucklehead like me and, and make your bottoms go deeper and longer like I did. As a, I had a few more years before I really got serious about sobriety and realized that I had a disease that, that wants to kill me. Because um, alcoholism and addiction are just deadly diseases. I was in rehab that I learned that they were diseases. I didn't believe that they were a disease up until going to rehab. Um, I just thought there was a like a sign of being weak or, you know, that if I just had better willpower, I could, could control it. But I didn't realize that I had this disease. But in rehab, they taught me for anything to be classified as a disease by, you know, the American Medical Association and the World Health Organization, it only has to have three characteristics. It has to be progressive, it has to be chronic, and it has to be fatal. And for me, each time I relapsed, um, it got worse. So that was progressive. It was chronic because I kept relapsing. And when I you know, was using, I was using every day. And uh, it was on its way to being fatal because, you know, after a couple more relapses, uh, I started doing more hardcore drugs, started doing cocaine for a while, for maybe on and off for a year. But that got too expensive. So then I, I converted to a crystal meth head for another year or so. And uh, that really took me to some really deep and dark places. I was kind of homeless living out of my car. My wife had finally started going to Al-Anon and started setting boundaries and basically said, if you can't be sober, you can't live in this house. Um, and I couldn't be sober, so I was choosing to live out of my car for a few months um, until I ran out of money. And that was kind of my MO. Is I, I'd, go, I'd relapse, I'd use up all my money on drugs and alcohol, and then I'd end up checking into rehab because I didn't want to be totally homeless on the street. And I remember, uh, I think I was 27. I'd been in and out of the program for a couple of years, and I'd been up for up on speed for about a week. And then I was driving, and I finally crashed while I was driving. And I told my car, I smashed in the back of another car. And luckily, nobody was in the car. The other car was parked. There was nobody in it. But in my car, I had my baby brother, who was 16 at the time, and one of his friends in the back seat. And neither one of them had their seatbelt on, and they were loaded too. My baby brother... His head went into the windshield. He got a, a broken uh, nose and a black eye. And that was the first time where I, I had a moment of clarity where I realized that, you know, whoa, my drinking and using could actually hurt somebody else or kill somebody else. Up until that point in my drinking and using career, I never thought that I was hurting anybody else but myself. You know, I just thought, I'm only hurting myself, so you know, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm not hurting anybody else. But that was like one of the first things that happened to me that really kind of helped me get to the ultimate surrender where I could get sober. And the other thing happened, you know, and I actually did stay sober for about six months, I think, after that, that relapse. But then I did relapse again. And I was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder around the same time. 
which uh, gave me a real resentment. I was really angry that I'd been diagnosed bipolar because I was having a hard enough time just figuring out how to stay sober and stop drinking and doing drugs. And now the doctor, the psychiatrist have given me this other issue that I've got to contend with. Just like alcoholism, you know, the denial was cunning, baffling and powerful. Bipolar disorder has the same kind of denial that goes with it. So I was in real denial about that. And I wouldn't be consistent about taking my meds. And then sometimes I would take my meds and I'd start feeling better. And then my head would tell me, oh, you're cured. You don't need to take your meds anymore. And then I went through this period where I'd go off my meds. And as soon as I went off my meds, I'd start having bipolar symptoms of depression, anxiety, and mania. And then I'd start self-medicating with marijuana and alcohol and other drugs again. And I just went through this vicious cycle from basically 1999 to 2004 before I really hit bottom. Um, and I went through in and out of, I don't know, five rehabs over those five years. And every time I got out of rehab, I was always told by my counselors and my therapists that you need to go to sober living for a long time. You need to commit for sober living before you go back home. But I was just a stubborn, pig-headed, dumb SOB that said, no, you know, my wife's at home with my, my son. And, I, you know, and after a couple of rehabs, my two sons, because I had my first son in 1999 and my second son in 2001. And I'm like, my wife and my kids need me. So I'd rush straight back home with only a few weeks sober and not at a good program and barely worked any steps or at least really worked them seriously. And before I know it, you know, the stress of trying to raise two little boys and please my wife and all that stuff, would just, I wasn't ready for all that. And I relapsed. But in 2004, I was like, all right, I'm tired of kicking my own ass. <laughs> I'm ready to do whatever you guys say. I ended up checking into a year-long program. Well, it was a 90-day treatment program and then another nine months of sober living. So I, I did a year of that. I'm like, I'll stay here as long as you want me to, a year or longer, whatever. I'm just, I want to get this thing down. So I really built the foundation at this place called the Victory House in Burbank, California. And uh, I did well. And after a year, I got to move back home. And I ended up staying sober for three years and a couple months. And uh, I did, you know, really well, except uh, around three years, I did, uh, I got into a little trouble at work. Um, I'm a school teacher. And at the school I was at at the time, I bought a stolen iPod off of a student. And I ended up getting put in what they call the rubber rooms or the teacher jail for the rest of the year. And I almost uh, got into a lot of trouble, but they decided just to let me go from that school district and not report it to the State Teaching Credential Commission. So... But I stressed out about that, and I panicked, started having anxiety attacks, and started self-medicating with marijuana. I went off my meds and started self-medicating with marijuana again. And I had my last relapse, which lasted about two, two and a half months. I remember I checked into rehab toward the end of that relapse. And the second day that I was in the rehab, I got this roommate who checked in with like an ounce of cocaine. And here I am, that day and a half sober, and my roommate's got all this cocaine. I'm like, oh, well, I may as well use this. You know, what's a few more days of getting loaded? And I ended up actually having to go to the counselors at that rehab and say, look, you know, a lot of people are getting loaded in here, and I really do want to get sober, so I need to check out of here so I can get sober. <laughs> and that was the irony. They're like, what? And I'm like, trust me, if I'm going to get sober, i got to get out of this place because there were too many people. It was, they had very loose rules, and it was a very big facility with different buildings everywhere, and there was a lot of stuff going on that shouldn't be going on in rehab. So I had to get out of there, and I checked out of there on my 33rd birthday. And when I drove, left my car, it had four beers in it and had a little bit of weed. And I drove to this park near JPL, Oak Grove Park. And I drank those last four Pacifico beers. And I smoked as much weed as I felt like I could smoke. And I still had a little bit left. But then I just smashed my pipe down on the ground of the glass pipe, cracked in a bunch of pieces. I threw my weed on, you know, underneath it. And then I pissed all over it. 
And that was the last time I ever drank or smoked weed or did any drugs. Because they told me, you know, if you don't remember your last drink or drug, then you're not done drinking or using. So I very clearly remember those four Pacifico beers and that weed that, and that glass pipe that I smashed and pissed all over. Because I wasn't about to try and use that stuff with broken glass and piss all over it. <laughs> so that was my last drink or drug, and that was June 15, 2007. And then uh, what it was like getting sober, you know, after having three years and a couple months, I thought I was doing good, but then I had to start all over, you know, work the steps all over. And the sponsor I had actually moved away, so I got a new sponsor, and I went through the steps again with this another guy, Richard B., a really great guy. I got into a really good place with my sobriety, but I, I kind of had some other addictions kind of manifest themselves because... You know, they told me in my first year of sobriety, you know, just worry about don't drinking and don't doing drugs. So I'm going to meetings every day, you know, sometimes two, three meetings a day. And in all the meetings, they have cake and cookies. And I'm just eating like a food addict because I'm a food addict too. I got food issues. And I gained like 60 pounds in my first year sober. And then at about a year and a half sober, I stepped on the scale. I remember it was New Year's Eve, uh, December 31st, 2008. And I weighed 250 pounds. And I was just like, holy crap. I was, I'm on my way to 300, you know, 250 rounds up to 300. And I was just so upset. And I just prayed to God like I did when I, you know, prayed to get sober. And I said, God, you know, just help me do three simple things. Help me stop eating seconds, you know, eat reasonable portion sizes. Help me start exercising every day. And, you know, and I made up this rule for myself. I'm not allowed to watch TV or play video games until I've exercised every day for at least an hour. And so I started doing that, you know, at a year and a half sober. And, uh, I ended up losing 60 pounds in six months, and I started running half marathons, then marathons, started doing triathlons, and I found doing regular exercise as a really critical, important part of my recovery, you know, because I, I like to say, you know, we have a disease of a threefold nature, you know, it affects our mind, our body, and our spirit, so we've got to take care of our mind, body, and our spirit, and, you know, after several years of kicking my own butt, I learned, you know, to take care of my mind means I have, for me, I have to listen to my psychiatrist and take the mood stabilizer meds that he prescribed me and not try to take my own meds or go off the meds or self-medicate with anything else. So that's how I take care of my mind. To take care of the spirit, I work the 12 steps. I go to my meetings. I sponsor guys. I connect with my sponsor on a regular basis. And I be of service. You know, I have commitments. And then to take care of my body was the exercise, that, that component for me, because I also do have the bipolar disorder, so I still get some mania, even though the mood stabilizers kind of stabilize me. They don't always stabilize me. So whenever I get really hyper, I just go for a run, or I go swim, or I go bike, or I do something just to you know, get the blood flowing and to burn off that manic energy, and it just helps me feel stable. And I've been doing that for the last, you know, I've got 13 and a half years sober, but I didn't really start exercising regularly until a year and a half sober, so for the last 12 years. and. Uh, I've done a, several Ironman triathlons over the last 12 years. I got a master's degree. I wrote a book. I started doing ultra running. I had a sober baby at five years sober. My wife got pregnant again, and now we have a daughter. And uh, so I have one kid that I have more sobriety than. Actually, my older boys are both in college now, so I have more sobriety than all my children because <laughs> I know that they've uh, at least dabbled with drinking and marijuana because they're in college, and that's what college kids do, and that's okay. My life is worlds better in sobriety, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. And unless you have any questions for me, I think that's enough out of me. Man, that's that's a crazy story, and I related to a lot of it. Your car crash story is very similar to events that have happened in my life, man, so I definitely related to a lot of what you shared, and I, too, am a really slow learner, and it took me a couple tries before I got it. I wanted to extend that misery as well, so I can definitely relate to what you're sharing.
Yeah, this disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful, man. It's rich. It took my sponsor, t you know, really telling me, look, you got a disease that's going to kill you. And he walked me into this room, this funeral of a buddy of his who had 15 years sober, relapsed, and died a week later from an overdose. And then he walked me back to my rehab, and he's like, you know what? You you could die of this disease today or tomorrow, and, you know, your wife will be sad for a little while, but eventually she's going to replace you. She's going to find another dude to be her husband and to be the father for your children. And when he laid all that on me and I processed all that, like, whoa, I could die from this disease. I'm a dead man walking and somebody else is going to replace me as the father and, you know, you know, as the husband of my wife and the father of my children. That just made me angry. And I just prayed to God. I'm like, no, nobody's going to replace me because I know what it's like to grow up without a dad. And I didn't want that to happen to my children. And that also has been a huge motivation to keep me sober since he really made that clear to me. That just really hit home. and I just don't want that to happen. I just, I think that's what it takes for everybody to have that moment of clarity and to realize we have a, a disease that will kill us if we don't take it seriously, you know, one day at a time and work all the things we need to do, the tools of the program to, to stay on top of our sobriety. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about the triathlons? Yeah, yeah. I love talking about triathlons. <laughs> when I was 25 and 26, and I'd been kind of going to, a, I, I managed to get a so, year sober from age 25 to 26, uh, mainly going to Marijuana Anonymous. And I did a couple triathlons, did a couple short distance ones, a sprint, a couple Olympics, Olympic distance. And I liked it, but then, you know, my disease took me away from regular exercise and I got, you know, fat and. But then when I, you know, after I really got sober in uh, 2007 and you know, started losing the weight in 2009, I did a, another triathlon, which I kind of consider my first triathlon when I really got serious about it in August 2009. And I remember I went out there with this old mountain bike and these basketball shorts and a cracked helmet and <laughs> some basketball high tops. And I was like, I'm just going to go out and do it and have fun. I ended up getting 16th place in my age division, which I thought was amazing for me at age, I guess, 35. I was like, wow, you know, if I did this good without even really putting in a lot of effort, imagine what would happen if I, uh, you know, really got the gear. Because, you know, a lot of these other people at the race had these carbon fiber bikes and these aero helmets and these tight suits and all this other stuff. So I ended up getting the gear and getting books. And I read a ton of books and started listening to podcasts by triathletes, you know, read Finding Ultra by Rich Roll, Born to Run, and really got into just running, biking, swimming, and ended up doing my first Ironman in 2010, right after I took three years sober. And I remember I went back to my home group meeting and I was like, tell them about my first Ironman. I just kept saying the serenity prayer. I must have said the serenity prayer like a thousand times during that race. It took me about 12 and a half hours. And I was just like, you know, I got into the swim and I'm like, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom of the difference and you know, just get me through the swim. You know, while I'm swimming, I'm saying it. While I'm biking, I'm saying it, you know, and <laughs> while I'm running, I'm saying it. And then I'm also saying the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer and just doing a gratitude list in my head and just praying the whole way. And I was able to get it done. And man, it felt so good to, to cross that finish line. And actually at this race, they let my two little boys, you know, meet me about 50 yards out from the finish line and they ran across the finish line with me. I got a little video of them doing that. And after I did that, I was just so empowered. I'm like, wow, you know, I felt really good, which surprised me because I thought I was going to be like majorly sore. And I'm like, if I could do this in, you know, 12 hours and 42 minutes this year, or I think 12 hours and 40 minutes, I'm like, I could probably do this faster. So then I just started chasing faster times, you know, and sign up for a bunch more. I ended up doing like two a year for five years. I cracked 12 hours once at Ironman in Arizona a year or two later. And then I started doing ultra running after that and got hooked on running, you know, mountain trail runs that were 50K, 50 mile, up to 100 mile endurance runs. 
And uh, that's, I've been more into that the last few years, but I still do a few triathlons here and there. And I just uh, I love being out on the trails or on my bike. Just uh, For me, it's like going to church. I just feel like I'm one with God when I'm out on the mountain trails out there running in nature. You also mentioned that you wrote a book. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I just I wrote a book this year called Tripolar, the Story of a Bipolar Triathlete. You know, people have been telling me for years I should write a book about, you know, kind of my crazy story. And, you know, <laughs> so I, I finally actually got around to writing it in June 2019 um, through another 12-step fellowship, uh, Debtors Anonymous. And in Debtors Anonymous, they have this thing that's really cool that I wish all 12-step programs had. It's called the Tools Game. And in the Tools Game, you just work on four things for 10 minutes each a day. So for 40 minutes a day, you work on these four things. One of them is you just make a phone call to somebody else on your team, and there's usually teams of four. So you just make one phone call. It doesn't even have to take 10 minutes. The other three things you are supposed to do for 10 minutes, and one of them is supposed to be for self-care. One of them is supposed to be to work doing something to expand towards your career or kind of vision where you want to go with your life. And then the last one is uh, something to take care of your spirit, you know, and you can decide what those things are. So for me, the self-care was doing meditation because I already exercise a lot. And for the, the expanding the career or vision was for me to start writing the book. So I just spent 10 minutes a day to start writing. You know, some of those 10-minute sessions turned into two or three-hour sessions. And six months later, I had a full manuscript with 100,000 words, which was too long. <laughs> so then I had to hire an editor. They helped me cut it down to about 80,000 words. And I just set another goal of, you know, six months. It took me six months to write the manuscript, so I wanted to get through the editing process in six months. And I set my target on having a published date of July 2020, and, you know, because I had finished the manuscript in December 2019. And I didn't know this whole COVID pandemic was going to hit because I was expecting to go on book tours, at least to local bookstores and libraries and try and promote it there. But, you know, it's been a crazy year. And so uh, I've been going on all these podcasts to talk about it. And uh, I mean, ultimately, when I finished writing the book, um, people told me, you know, you got to kind of think about what platform you want to have for your book. And I didn't, I'm learning everything. It's the first time I've written a book. And ultimately, my platform is, uh, I, I really feel like people need to exercise regularly to help maintain their mental health. And I realized that I want to become an advocate for mental health in writing the book because I was diagnosed with bipolar at age 27 and I'm age 46 and I just published a book this year. And for most of the 20 years that I've been, you know, having bipolar disorder that I've you know, known that I've been diagnosed with it, I haven't told a lot of people. I, I've been ashamed of it. I've hidden behind it. Only close family and close friends knew that I had it. I didn't like to talk about it. Occasionally, I might bring it up in a 12-step meeting, but it was just something that I still, there was like the stigma of like me being weak or crazy, you know, because I'm bipolar. So I really kind of didn't like to talk about it. I took my meds every day, you know, I did what the shrink told me to do, but I didn't like to tell people that I saw a shrink. And it was in writing this book that I realized, you know, there's probably a lot of other people that, that feel the same way. So now, you know, my message is to get out there to let other people know that, you know, you're not alone. A lot of people have mental health issues. They say one in five people have some sort of mental health issue. And, and right now with the pandemic, I think it's like four out of five or five out of five because a lot of people are having cabin fever or whatever else going on. So, so yeah, writing my book really made me realize that I, you know, I'm going to stop hiding behind my mental illness and I'm going to encourage others that you don't have to hide. You know, there doesn't need to be a stigma. 
you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be a disability. You can go on to do many great things as long as you, you know, you manage your recovery and you do what your doctor says and you take care of yourself. So, so that's what I'm hoping other people can learn from me and what I've gone through. That's awesome, man. If the listeners want to find you or your book, uh, where can they do that at? Easiest place is go to my website, ultratimdavis.com, or you can search tripolar and my name, Tim Davis, on Google, Amazon, Apple Books. It's the first one that'll pop up if you write tripolar and Tim Davis. So, um, yeah, it's available on Amazon, Apple Books, uh, Book Depository, Barnes & Noble, and a few others that are on my website. If you go to my website, um, there's a little section that says where you can buy my book. <laughs> and there's actually a pop-up when you go to my website, which is ultratimdavis.com. And then I was just saying that it's available in, you know, ebook, paperback, and audiobook. I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing part of your journey in recovery. I also appreciate that you brought up the importance of exercise and how that helps with our mental health as well as our recovery. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even if maybe you don't have to go out and do Ironmans and 100-mile runs, but maybe just at least, you know, walk a few laps around your block or get on the rowing machine or stationary bike, whatever you're able to do, because I know some people have different injuries that prevent them from running or other activities. But find some activity you can do, aqua classes, you know, if you have bad joints, you can still get in the pool and move around those arms and legs, you know, a little bit, you know, just something regularly to do to, to help you out. Thanks again, Tim. Yeah, thank you, Brett. If you'd like to find out more about Tim or his book, the information will be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.